escuchas ese rugido? ¿Sientes la experiencia de poder? ¿La emoción de la libertad? Ya estás preparado para vivir tu nueva aventura. Nueva Ram 1500, hecha para vivir. Ram es una marca registrada de FCA US LLC. Raises a number of deeply troubling questions about the state of governance in Ghana today. Firstly, it raises the question as to whether the president should be appointing an individual to serve on the board of a public agency with whom that individual has private business dealings. And if so, doesn't that set this individual up for conflict of interest? Question number two, is it appropriate for the president to appoint a Council of State member to a state agency board? And was there an objectively compelling public interest related reason for the president to make such an appointment? And thirdly, was the appointment run by the Council of State? And if the answer is yes, doesn't the Council of State's approval of the appointment of one of its members to a state agency board position smack of institutional self-dealing? I don't really know what answers will be given to these questions by the authorities that enabled this horrible state of affairs to take place in the first place. But it leads me to two very basic conclusions. It speaks specifically to the entrenchment of incumbent leaders and political elite capture of the Ghanaian state. And it also speaks generally to the alarming decline in governance standards in our fourth republic. We've tried over the years to signal through the investigations we've conducted that came close to how Article 2864, which is on after the first declaration, a public officer who cannot explain the assets that he has to either income, inheritance, and a number of grounds. Right. That yes. Those assets and what are, are deemed to have been acquired illegally and should be confiscated to the state. Mm-hmm. Now, there are two things, substantive and procedural. Substantive is this provision needs to be fleshed out. How do we flesh it out? Because in Chapter 24, we have put before, it has gone before Parliament, it has come back to Cabinet, the Conduct of Public Officers Bill, trying to flesh out the whole of Chapter 24 on assets declaration, on conflict of interest, and on oaths. This, unfortunately, this bill is still stuck 10 years since then, Mm. before either the parliament or cabinet. This is a veritable tool to fight corruption in this country. We have made efforts to ensure that this is included in the conduct of public officers' bill. It doesn't seem public officers are very enthused about that. In the skies, at sea, and on land, we have eyes everywhere. We see it all when you're involved in corruption and think you're hiding. We will get you. Right, so you had Professor Jima Gwedi of the CDD and also uh, you had Joseph Wital, who is Commissioner, uh, Commission on Human Rights and Administrative Justice, Shraj, uh, because there's become the need <laughs> for more conversations on the questions of conflict of interest, which leads to corruption, and how, you know, to stop grand corruption in public uh, place. And as you may have just read uh, yesterday, 
uh, a member of parliament, Francisca Oteng uh, Mensa, a uh, member of parliament for Quabre East, um, is also being investigated by Shraj over allegations of conflict of interest. Um, her situation is that, you know, uh, she's presently uh, heading for, you know, consideration for deputy gender minister and is being accused of using her influence as the board chairperson of the National Youth Authority to help in approving the procurement of sanitizers from a company that she is director and is a shareholder in. Her lawyers have written to say that, yes, she's a director, she's a shareholder, but she's not responsible for the day-to-day management of the company and did not participate in any processes leading to uh, the public institution giving the contract to the company that she is a shareholder and director of. Now, um, let's, let me begin with you, um, Isaac. And we, we've heard you say, for example, that when it comes to this question, when you look at the way Professor Jumabudi talks about it and how Joseph Wetal talks, talks about it also, you particularly stress on the issue of the finance minister and his deputy that they can't escape conflict of interest on the question of the Eurobond issues. What do you say about how these matters are now coming up quite a bit more? Well, uh, thank you. You know, this issue with the finance minister started in 2017, and I issued an article in which I made it very clear that it was inconceivable that the minister would allow his company, in fact, he would appoint his company to be a book runner and, for that matter, an advisor to him. This is in respect of even the local boss. Because the process is very clear, and your response was that the minister has no hand in the appointment, but it cannot be. That in the fact he had resigned two years before becoming resigned. minister. We are not talking about salaries. We are talking about profits. We are talking about shareholding. Because when the company makes profit and dividends are declared, who gets it? It's a shareholder. So the shareholding matter, it's a lot more difficult and more important than the employee. The employee can be sacked any day. But shareholders, until they decide to sell off the company, even if you decide to transfer your shares to trust, you are still the beneficial owner. And the new Companies Act requires that you file the beneficial ownership of the company as a compliance issue every year. So you can't run away from the fact that there is a direct benefit you get by virtue of your shareholding. Now, when you are going to appoint somebody who will go out and borrow close to 100 billion for a government, the calendar shows that you are borrowing an average of 20 billion a quarter every three months. And you are the finance minister. And you say that you are not involved in who goes to borrow 20 billion a quarter for you. Who else will do that? So, even if you set up a team, you will have to define the terms of reference. What are you recruiting the person to come and do? What is the type of person you expect would have the capacity and the resource envelope to do this work? And three, you have to even determine the fallback position for the state in the event that some monies are missing in the process. So there must be a very good what you call a guarantee from that person. Then it turns out that the request for proposal that you sent out was responded to by your company. Two, you recruited your company. Three, you sent your company to go and borrow. And yet, in the process of borrowing, there are very critical interactions between you and the book runner in which you are taking decisions as to how much cost the state must pay for the loans that have been borrowed. When you are building the book, the book runner occasionally has to talk to the minister for finance or his representative on the characteristics of the other book and advise on steps that must be taken in order to realize the objective of that particular order. And you, that, and that person who is doing all of this, is you yourself in your company. Mm. Then when he is done, 
<laughs> the next moment, you are the one paying that same person, which is you. So, you recruit somebody when you are going to work. You go with him. You get to work. You ask the person to go to Bank of Ghana and borrow for you. When you have finished borrowing, the next day you tell him, come, today I'm going to pay you. So let's go and I pay you. And you say, this is not conflict of interest. At the time, the Minister for Finance became a Minister for Finance in 2017. The total volumes that his company was doing per industry records was 100 million. And we're looking for somebody with experience to go and lead us to borrow 20 billion a quarter. Does this company look like the one we should be looking for? To go and borrow 20 billion a quarter for us. Somebody whose track record is 100 million is the one to lead us to go and borrow 20 billion a quarter. Average of about 80 billion in a year. Seriously, even in terms of qualification, you have a big issue. So you cannot escape the fact that you recruited your own company. You paid your own company. Look, in some instances, check from the securities depository at the, at the Bank of Ghana or the stock exchange. You'll find that about 75% of monies that were borrowed by this government were done on a sole sourcing basis. We call it either you drop or you tap or private placement. Those arrangements, the broker, who is the broker? Let's grant that the broker is even the book runner. That's you. This man, you ask him to go and approach somebody and negotiate a loan with terms and come back for you to, 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 to sign it off and borrow. So the brokers who go to tap these agencies, who are they? Now they go to somebody like, say, GCB and say, we want two billion. Then GCB, I bet I haven't seen any advert saying that you are going to borrow. Say, no, 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 this one we are not advertising. We want hot cash. No, 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 no. How much can you give us? So okay, I have the two billion. But how much is your interest rate or your coupon? He says, oh, I'll give you a coupon of 18. Then he says, oh, no, 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 18 is too, is too much. We'll give you 16. This is data bank negotiating with somebody on behalf of the Minister for Finance. So if they conclude that they will go and borrow that money at, say, uh, uh, 21%, and the person takes all the $2 billion at 21%, the next day he goes on the capital, back capital market to go and sell those things and get his money. And he goes and realizes that the bonds are actually trading Similar bonds are trading at a yield of 18%. It means already he has 3% above what everybody else would have given to us. Because it was not a competitive exercise, your company has succeeded in negotiating somebody with somebody to give us an extra cost of 3%. How that person can realize that 3% within one day is that in order for somebody to buy that bond and get a yield of 18%, it means that he must buy my bond not for 100 cities, but more. So that when they pay him the coupon of 21%, and he strikes at a percentage of how much he has now bought it from me, you'll see that he gets a return or a rate of 18%. So assuming that that additional price that he has to pay me, which is a premium, is 5 cities. I bought the 100 cities yesterday, because I got a deal of 21% instead of 18% on the market, the next day I'm selling it for 105 Ghana. If I bought 1 million of that, within one day I make 5 million. If I bought a billion of that, within one day I make 5 billion. And you say this is no conflict of interest. What would it be? Who took the decision to negotiate for 21% in this regard? to the market indicative rate represented by the yield on the market. Can you answer? So, there is a very, very big question. Look, the response they gave to us, if you take your time and you look at the report, they will tell you that in 2020, they raised 97 billion, which was a record-breaking borrowing, on the domestic market. 
That 97 billion, they borrowed with only book runners. There were no bond market specialists. So how come the next year, 2021, you now create another division for bond market specialists when you are already doing record numbers? You know why? Because that 97 billion is both bonds where the book runners did, plus treasury bills, which are not book run, but the treasury bills are normally done on auction. So everybody goes to compete for that auction. Now when you created the bond market specialist, you define the bond market specialist in their own report as a private dealer that has exclusive rights to auction, to, to attend auction for treasury bills, government securities, and to issue bonds. Which means that now the entire 97% is within reach. 97 billion is now within reach. So in addition to the bonds, which you and your companies were doing, you have now added treasury bills, which others were struggling to pick the pieces. So now, in addition to bonds, where you are exclusive, you have now added treasury bills, which you are exclusive in terms of the people who borrow. And this time, when you were supposed to, you know, he listed a number of financial institutions, if not all of them, and focus on Blackstar Brokerage, focus on Data Bank, and Blackstar Brokerage as a deputy deputy minister's, minister's company, and and then yes, the, the deputy minister's former company. Former, he well, also resigned, even though he has shares. <laughs> that is not a resignation. It's a resignation. I'm talking about ownership. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about who works there. Yeah. Okay. So now let's. No, so the point I'm trying to make is that you picked 17 non-financial, uh, uh, non-bank financial institutions which were qualified to become book runners and bond market specialists. You decided that you are supposed to, you are going to pick only three out of the 17. When you pick three out of the 17, two were your companies. Two were your companies. With only one, IC Securities not belonging to you, the two of you. And IC Securities has been a major player, in fact, the biggest player in the industry, right from the days of the NDC. And you want to tell me that that decision was taken on merit. When the company that you said you took on merit, Blackstar Brokerage, in 2017, did zero in the market. The data is quite clear from the secondary market of the fixed income industry. That in 2017, that is why when they were responding, you see that they started, they started quoting the numbers from 2019. You see? They started from 2019. Why were they not starting from 2017, 2018? Were they not in government? Were not that the people who didn't have book runners? In 2017, when they arrived in government and Charles Edouard was a deputy minister, his company was doing both buy and sell side of the market, zero. How did that zero company metamorphose to become the biggest player and now a bond market specialist? And at the same time, Book runner. Um, Professor H. Crazy Premper, let me bring Professor H. Crazy Premper in here. And um, the, the, I think the, the, the focus should now be conflict of interest. There is a cure to it. So you have a minister who is resigned, you have a deputy who has resigned, you know. Um, they have shares in the company, and yet they can't do business. You have this uh, lady who is also being investigated now. She says, I'm a director, um, I'm a shareholder, but I'm not responsible for the day-to-day -day running of the company. Um, and all of this, you know, dovetailing into the, the OSP's revelations about the LaBianca company and its owner. Uh, Mrs. Um, Asuma Hene. The, and you've heard Professor Jimabwedi ask questions. She's member of the Council of State. She does work in the port, substantial work at the port. She gets appointed onto the board there. Then is a Council of State that also have to consider her. She's already part of them. Is it are there not rules in conflict of interest where it is allowed 
in the circumstances like uh, this woman and these ministers, for example? Um, uh, thank you, Samson. And, um, so I think this matter of conflict of interest, I mean, it's really painful that um, we have waited for it to get to this point. Right? The reason I say that is that conflict of interest is actually almost like an early warning signal. The concept of it, right? So in and of itself, it is not an offense to find yourself in a conflict of interest situation, right? So a conflict of interest describes a situation a public officer or an agent finds themselves in where their private interests are likely to clash, conflict, or come in collision with their public obligations of their office, the expectations of their office, the responsibilities and duties of their office. Whenever you take a public office, you become a fiduciary, which means that you owe a duty of loyalty to the public, to the state. That duty of loyalty uh, implies, at the minimum, that you place the interest of the office, of the state, of the public, above your personal interest. So the conflict of interest rule puts you on notice, right? It's something that puts you on notice, that when you are in a certain public role, make sure that your private interests do not come in collusion with your public role, your public expectations of your office, your duties, your responsibilities. So it is giving you an opportunity to avoid going the next step, which is that if you do not cure or manage or remove yourself from a conflict of interest situation, then it would likely ripen into corruption because then you are going to undertake the act that then immediately means that you have now moved from just being in a conflict situation to actually using your public office for private gain, which is corruption. And I, what I'm saying is that we have been so inattentive, right? We have this wonderful obligation, a provision in 284. You don't find it in most constitutions. Our constitution expressly puts 284 there, which therefore serves notice that in Ghana, when you are a public officer, pay attention to this risk, okay? And yet, we have done nothing about conflict of interest. What this means is that even before an appointment is made, right, we tend to focus a lot on declaration of assets. In my view, actually, the declaration of interest, the register of interest is probably the most important if you want to deal with corruption. So that every place where a public office is, where public officers work, the executive branch needs to have its own declaration of interest, the register of interest, and conflict of interest rules. The legislature must have one. The judiciary must have one. Every public office. This must be one of the most common things in the public services because of 284. We must mainstream this 284 within the public services. Then everybody would know that here when you work, these are the minefields that you have to navigate and that you have to avoid. Mm. Okay, so when we don't pay attention to this, and we have it, really, uh, every evidence shows that we have it. In fact, we create a lot of conflict situations that we should avoid. Mm. One of the conflict situations I see is that merely because the Constitution doesn't uh, prohibit you from appointing MPs to serve on boards, we, have, we, we do this habitually. But it is actually one of the things that creates a lot of conflict. What do MPs do? MPs oversee uh, the executive branch, among other things. They keep oversight uh, to make sure that the, the monies allocated through the budget are spent as appropriated. 
They make sure that the public administration is functioning in ways that serve the public interest. And in this job, it often means that you are going to be overlooking, overseeing the work of ministries and agencies, the MDAs, right? Ministries, departments, and agencies. So if you pick a public, uh, if you pick a legislator who has this role amongst others, and you put them on the board of a commercial entity or an operating uh, company in the state sector, what have you done? Right? You are now forcing them to wear multiple hats. And in the role in which you have placed them, you are going to then get them not just from a potential conflict of interest situation, but actual situation. So you ask mm. the question about a minister appointed to a role. Why? Let's say you are a minister for agriculture, or before you became a minister for agriculture, you are known to be a big-time farmer. Great job, right? Big-time commercial farmer, or, or you own a, you know, um, a fertilizer company, whether it's an importing company or a manufacturer. And because of your knowledge of the sector, you get appointed minister or deputy minister for agriculture. That position you have been placed in creates a potential conflict of interest, right? It is not that it's disqualifying, you shouldn't be appointed, but if we were taking conflict of interest uh, seriously, we would have already ground rules for dealing with this, which means that the moment you step into this office, each time your ministry or a department under your ministry or an agency under your ministry transacts that some business with the agricultural sector in terms of the industry, whether it means allocating fertilizers, importing fertilizers, and all of these things. If we have done nothing about this conflict that uh, may arise, you are likely to walk yourself into a situation where you actually will engage in corruption because you would have completely ignored the fact that you have interest on the other side of the transaction and on this side as well. So the, the real difficulty that I think we find ourselves in, and I, and I really think it is why we, have, we are failing to have a handle on the conflict of on the corruption problem, is that the lead up to corruption, conflict of interest is one of the major leads up to corruption, and we have completely ignored dealing with that one. If we dealt with conflict of interest seriously and comprehensively, we would avoid many of the corruption problems that mm. we have. Uh, pro- but because we, have, yeah. because we haven't, mm. we have left opportunity for corruption to be just widespread in the system, mm. and people see nothing. You don't see anything wrong, even Parliament. Right. Parliament, even in terms of the committee membership. Mm. right? They put people on committees who have interest. Uh, in the particular industry, the committee is supposed to be regulating, mm. right? So you put some somebody on, I mean, maybe to oversee, say, the Ministry of Transportation, assuming that somebody who owns an airline were to get to the ministry, I mean, were to become an MP, and that uh, person is put on the Transportation Committee or Aviation Committee of Parliament, that oversees how the aviation industry and the ministry responsible for that is regulating the industry or issuing licenses, right? Why would you do such a thing? I mean, mm. that's a clear conflict. And yeah, yet, so, we do these mm. things. So, Prof, my, my, my question here is, um, I, I've been reading quite a bit, uh, particularly from the UK and elsewhere, where I see people, public officers, ministers, MPs, like Boris Johnson's uh, brother, Joe, and other mm-hmm. people resigning on issues of conflict of interest that does not directly, you know, um, concern them, so to speak, but because of their family members or something of the sort. There are situations where they have resigned and even their own institution says um, they could do without resigning because they are actually not in conflict, so to speak. But they say that because there is a certain feeling and the potential publicly of a certain perception, they will resign. My question is, you have referred to Article 284 of our Constitution, which says that a public officer shall not put himself in a position where his personal interest conflicts 
or is likely to conflict with the performance of the functions of his office. Does that mean that if you take the Minister of Finance, his deputy, uh, if you take uh, uh, As Asuma Hene, if you take, for example, this MP now, they, they simply should not be in the positions where they are. They should choose their businesses over these positions. Is that the case? Well, not, not, not necessarily so. So uh, appointing former bankers or people who have experience in the banking industry, whether on the commercial side or investment banking side, as uh, treasury secretaries and, and finance ministers or deputies is, is fairly common in, 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 in that field of work, right? It is not unusual. So that in and of itself does not run up uh, against 284 directly. It just creates the potential, the risk of a 284 violation, right? So, the, but you have to be aware of it, that if you are going to uh, uh, hire somebody who used to run an investment bank that does business with the state when the state goes to borrow, mm. you're going to appoint that person now to be the Minister of Finance. And amongst that person's duties will be raising debts for the country, right, on the capital markets. Then you, you have set that person up for a conflict of interest. Mm. And that person needs to then manage that conflict. That person, together with the appointing authority, the executive branch, you need to figure out a way to manage that conflict. Sometimes you can't manage a conflict successfully. Other times, the problem becomes so structural. The conflict is so structural that there is no wiggle room. You just can't manage it well. In that situation, one thing has to go. You can't serve two masters. So one interest has to be sacrificed sometimes. So mm. either you say, look, mm. My private interest looms so large and matter to me so much that I cannot find a way to really not really manage this conflict properly. And therefore, sorry, I don't like I won't take I will not take up this job. Or I will completely relinquish my interest. And and and, and that means you basically you can sell off your interest. You divest and you no longer have an interest, mm. right? Mm. But sometimes even that will not cure it. Because remember that conflict of interest, when we talk about personal interest, we are not just talking about the fact that you stand to gain personally, financially. Personal interest, the term interest includes familiar relationships, right. business associations. Mm. So sometimes conflicts even follow you, conflict of interest follow you after you have left office. In some mm. jurisdictions, there are rules about conflicts that carry on when you are no longer in that public office because it lingers on for some time. Mm. And so even when you quit a private organization, when right. you leave your former bank mm. as an employee or you divest your interest, the sense is that you still have bodies there. You still have cronies who are running it. And just like, so it's really based on this idea of human nature. That mm. look, if you have relationships that are close intimate and personal like that, the likelihood that you will privilege those positions, those relationships over the public, are so high, humanly, right. that we do not want you to put yourself in that situation. Okay. So just resigning mm. from the, the company is mm. not enough. All right. Sometimes even divesting mm. might not be enough. Okay. So sometimes you just say, sorry, data mm. bank, I'm going to take this job. It's going to really cost you because... I can no longer give you business in this role that I'm in. That is what it might entail sometimes. All right. You do. Okay. Um, thank you. Let me bring in Dr. Kofi Mbia, uh, former CEO, Ghana Shippers Authority, who is also a, a lawyer. Um, he's a senior partner with um, Alliance Partners and a maritime law consultant, international maritime organization. Uh, Dr. Kofi Mbia, thank you very much for your time. Um, the OSP... It's now, you know, after bringing out this issue of conflict of interest and, you know, many say um, uh, Professor Jima Bwedi has raised this so uh, plainly and then Professor HKC Prempe has given so much education to uh, want to give anybody the signal um, like 
like uh, the, the, the Bible says, avoid every appearance of evil. <laughs> Don't get into it. Just avoid it. Um, from where you sit, the OSP, after suffering all the backlash, uh, some supporting it, you know, is going into the ports even further, into an area where people say it's an open secret that we know that there is massive corruption in that area. And the conflict of interest is even bigger in that area when you come to the presidency and the politically exposed. That is auctioned um, items. The OSP says it's going to probe from 2016. We are hearing, you know, uh, some partisan uh, people say that he should go beyond that and not probe just from 2016. Let's hear what you have to say about this. I thank you very much, something, and uh, good morning to your cherished uh, listeners and uh, uh, viewers. Um, something I, I like the the way you captioned your topic. You said "open secret rot." Open secret rot. It means that uh, it is generally known. I mean, especially for those of us in the port industry, uh, this is this is known, and uh, it transcends all the regimes. I must say, it transcends all the regimes. Uh, why it will start from a particular time, I do not know, but I can tell you that it transcends all the regimes, and uh, it's important to realize that. Um, yeah, I mean, Chris uh, Prempe just, just mentioned that sometimes we have turned a blind eye to some of these things such that they have become more like second nature, if you like. Um, in, a, in a country where we Christian, uh, some parts of uh, corruption as protocol, uh, you, you can expect that these things would, would happen, you know. If you, if you look at the customs law and uh, you look at uh, the Customs Act uh, 2015, Act 891, you know, the commissioner has powers to uh, carry out auctions. And I must say that the law also adds allocations, you know. So... It is important that we, we realize that that power is there with the Commissioner General, you know, first and foremost. The issue is how has it been handled over the period? You know, uh, the, the Customs Act says that if you import a vehicle and you bring it into the country and you are not able to clear after 60 days, that vehicle is confiscated to the state. And once it's confiscated to the state, now the Commissioner General shall dispose of that motor vehicle. And it says it shall dispose of that motor vehicle uh, something under Section 59, uh, I believe, 2. Also, it says that uh, the Commissioner General shall dispose of the motor vehicle forfeited to the state or sell the motor vehicle on assets basis. And... Uh, Invariably, it happens that you'll find that uh, because it is said that he can sell the vehicle or can allocate or auction, choices are made. And these choices bring what Professor uh, Prempe referred to as the conflict of, of interest. Because most often you find people come with a cheat. And uh, once they bring the cheat uh, to the authorities in the port, they have no option. Uh, I must say that there are times when, if you count the number of vehicles that uh, have been confiscated to the state and gone to the state warehouse, you can count over 1,000 vehicles. You know? I do, I do recall uh, something that they have done a paper on this at the time of Professor Mills, you know, in which we, we recommended that this whole thing should be stopped completely and that... There should be a PPP, a public-private partnership set up. They should have a, a mechanical yard. All the vehicles should be sent to this yard. And uh, if there are repairs to be made, because some of the vehicles, in fact, are not drivable. And uh, all of these 
uh, will be towed and be sent to that yard. Repairs can be carried out. Government has a share. The private sector has a share. A portion of the vehicles will then be given to the police and then maybe to customs preventive. So all of these were, were, were suggestions that were made. But I, I must say that uh, the politicians see it differently, differently. They see it more as an avenue of providing, if you like, a reward to, to uh, party faithfuls. And consequently, that, that has not worked. Mm. The, the challenge, again, something has been that if you take the Customs Act itself, you would find out that it says that, uh, I believe 93, says that the Auction Sales Act 1989, PND Law 230, does not apply to sales under this act where the sale is conducted by a proper officer. And the Commissioner General qualifies as a proper officer. And therefore, if under his directives, it says that the auction law does not apply. And then, in another breath, an auctioneer is appointed by the Commissioner General. Do you expect him to apply these laws? I hope you get the point I'm making. You, you can't expect him then to apply the laws because it says that the Auction Sales Act does not apply to sales under this act. And consequently, all the rules which we have set down for auction therefore become inapplicable. Mm. And to the extent that they are inapplicable, even where an auction is done, uh, is done with selectivity. Sometimes you realize that a number of vehicles are there, customs know which vehicles are good, which ones are, if you like, rotten. And then an auction is carried out, and it goes the good ones, which move. And then all the ones which are bad, they still remain. So you will find out that there is always a backlog of not only vehicles, but also goods. You know? I do recall that in our proposal, for example, we mentioned the question of refrigerated containers. You know, because sometimes uh, the plug-in points are completely filled. So we said that, look, in this yard, there should also be refrigerated points. So there will be plug-in points in which you would plug the refrigerated containers and ensure mm. that uh, frozen foods are sold and government gets the benefit. It is unfortunate something that most of the time, a vehicle, for example, uh, for which the duty is about 50,000 Ghana cities, uh, the mm. importer is not able to pay the duty of 50,000. The vehicle uh, goes into the state warehouse, it's supposed to go on auction, it is allocated, and then you are asked to pay 20000 mm. Whilst the importer may have been prepared to pay 40000 or 30000 uh, that opportunity is not there for the importer, and it is given to life for peanuts uh, to a party functionary. Mm. You know, so uh, That's what, that's what people are, say. People say it's, it's actually clear robbery, uh, particularly where you know, political hands are involved. And often, um, you know, Joy News has done some of these exposés where you see, you see many politically exposed persons who are getting these vehicles for very cheap, um, for actually nothing really. Um, and people say it's, it hurts that citizens have invested their money to import a vehicle, they cannot afford the duty. And then when the vehicle has to be auctioned, it ends up in the hands of people who are wealthy, but they pay, they pay almost nothing for it. When the importer who couldn't pay the duty could actually have paid three times, four times, sometimes 10 times the amount of money that the wealthy person is now being asked to pay and take the vehicle. That, for some, is clear robbery. Uh, we have seen how Professor Mills, you know, was angry about what was going on at the port. Now, the issue some raise is that the law you refer to actually says that whatever it is, the duty and taxes 
must be paid. But it doesn't appear this is happening. And it does appear that this is the major focus of the, of the OSP as he goes into this area regarding vehicles. Um, what, do you, what do you expect yeah. from the OSP in this regard, in this probe? Yeah, something uh, that is right. It's a clear infraction of the of the law because the commissioner general is expected to dispose of these vehicles. The price at which the forfeited motor vehicle is disposed of, whether by auction sale, and I must emphasize mm. that it is not only with respect to the auction sale, because it says whether by auction sale, allocation, or any other method, allocation. So even allocations are included. It says that the duty and the taxes eligible on the motor vehicle ought to be paid. Something I can tell you, I can tell you without any equivocation, that 90% of the time, uh, this is not complied with. So, this is not complied So the OSP has his job clearly cut out for him. Uh, let me come to uh, Adongo, Mr. Adongo here, and then I return to Prof um, for his uh, final uh, submission on this matter. And what we are inviting Prof on is the concern, and I think it's genuine, that the OSP is making publications of these investigations and naming people and so on, and maybe damaging people in the course of it. Um, is that the right thing to do? Are their human rights not being infringed? Uh, once that is done, then we'll go uh, to the Bank of Ghana to help you to identify and to avoid getting into another men's gold situation. Yes, this investigation in the ports. Yeah, I think, uh, Daddy, the truth of the matter is that for a country that needs a lot of money, the ports has traditionally and for a very long time been a source where we lose a lot of money. I took my time to read the the Customs Act, Act 891, even in respect of the matters that the OSP has dealt with. And you can see that we are dealing with a cocktail of illegalities. Hmm. The law is very clear that there can be an advance ruling applied by an importer or an interested body and defines what exactly you can apply for for the commissioner to rule in advance. So I'm importing certain items into the country. Before the items are imported, I want the commissioner to have full information about that item. Because if the commissioner does not have the information, my suspicion that I may be paying a tax that I am not supposed to pay. Other by way of classification, because if they don't put my, my consignment in the right classification, I may pay a rate that is higher than the appropriate classification if I was put. If my consignment is placed in a different country of origin, I may be paying more than if it was put. So you have the right to do that. But the act is also clear as to how customs should value my items. Mm. And it is clear in this act, particularly under section 58, 68, that one of the methods that is frowned upon by this act that should never be used in the valuation of my item is a minimum value. In other words, the customs office cannot sit in its office and determine that this is the value that I must ordinarily pay if I'm imported, which is, in this case, we are calling the benchmark. Read 68 to F. And it tells you that you cannot use minimum values. Technically, it means that even benchmark values are illegal. Hmm. But it says that the standard way of valuing the item is the transaction value. How much I paid for it or I will pay for it, plus all the other costs are incurred to bring it to the port. That's what you should use. But when you are in doubt, it gives you other methods that you use. But then specify five methods that you should never use. One of them is 
not to use minimum values. So if somebody comes to you and applies to you that, I am bringing these items, and I'm asking you to value the items before they arrive. So here, the advanced ruling is on value. If you do the values, and you disagree with the person, one, if you disagree with the person and you are even giving him a, a, a discount, shouldn't it be on the value? Do you get it? Two, if you have evidence that you disagree with the value because the evidence before you shows that there is undervaluation or there is under-invoicing. Section 123 is very clear about the penalties and defines doctrine of documents meant for customs as an illegality that is subject to penalties. So why did, they, why did you give a discount on a benchmark? What, was, what did the person come for? The person said, this is, this is what I think is the value. If you agree, I pay that value. If you disagree and you think that you want to help me, you give me a discount on that value. But then you have established your own value unrelated to the values you and I are dealing with. Which value you are using is even illegal mm. in respect of your own act. Mm. And Randy, I want to, uh, I want to read that mm. so that people know exactly where we are coming from. 68 5 section 68 of 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 act 891 it is a minimum custom value. So you gave a discount on an illegality. So it tells you that something is happening. The advance ruling was provided to deal with people who genuinely believe that there is something wrong mm. with the understanding of customs. Okay. And therefore provide all the information for customs to make a determination. But to do that, provide it before you ship so that customer has all the information. But you know what? Mm. Before West Blue and uh, the other one, uh, uh, there were two. Yes, yes. Other was, four. Yeah. Good. Before they were abolished. To deal with advanced ruling, we already had a system we call the pre arrival assessment regime. That pre arrival and assessment regime said that before you were shipping, your, you will ship your item. You go onto an electronic platform and forward all your documents in advance. Customs will now look at your documents and do the pre-arrival assessment and produce a report. If customs believes that the documents you have brought, they don't believe in the document and that they think that you are understating, the, the, the commissioner is given the right to then produce what you call the customs Values. Mm. I mean, the commissioner's valuation. Okay. So the commissioner's valuation is a risk management tool for the exception rather than the norm. <laughs> what has happened to the pre-arrival inspection and pre-arrival assessment regime? What has happened? Mm. So now people are seeing these people. Let me tell you, before this thing came up, somebody told me that, look, at the port that we are joking. When you are importing something and you see your agent, what figure you want to pay is what they declare. Mm. And that's what they pay. I'm telling you. Mm. So it is a it's a procedure that is being used by people, basically not to pay taxes. So you're and happy want, the OSP is going there. And I want the OSP mm. to investigate the motivation for the benchmark values, which okay. is against the law. Okay. And then two, I want to direct the OSP to pay attention to what we call the suspense regime at the port. Largely, the suspense regime is the legal provisions that allow customs to suspend the duty until a later date. So, for instance, if you are running a bonded warehouse and the items arrive, because you run a bonded warehouse, they will allow you and track you to the bonded warehouse. Anytime you are removing the item, you pay the duty. So, like vehicles. Yes, so yeah. they keep an officer there. Exactly. Right. Good. Mm. That is the regime. Okay. Or if you are taking the items and they are for 
say import trade, export trade is supposed to go to Burkina Faso. Mm. It's expected to be paid there. That is where our problem is. Immediately those items leave the gate. There are no traces of them. Okay. Um, OSP, that's where your attention is being drawn to also. Uh, Professor HKC Prempe has been very excited about the fact that the OSP is paying attention to the port to begin its, you know, real work in exposing and dealing with corruption. But the question we have for him and hope that he could deal with it uh, very briefly before he takes leave of us is are the rights of these individuals not being violated where the OSP is making publications, their names are being put out there, and people are, you know, literally concluding and calling them criminals even before anything else? Yes, Prof. Please unmute your mic. Again, thanks for uh, offering me an opportunity to weigh in on this on this matter as well, and uh, to really uh, just justify my my enthusiasm for the OSP's focus uh, on the tax area. I think one a, a matter of time, right? Here we are back at the IMF. Um, among the reasons for going back, uh, we continue to have uh, a very low tax revenue to GDP ratio as a country. We have decried that many times. We, we tried to cure that with B levy. Uh, it's not generating uh, the revenues that we, we expect. Um, low revenues, low tax revenues have, have caused us uh, to, to wrap up a lot, a lot of debts uh, uh, as a result. So there are all these reasons why when you find that an agency uh, tasked with fighting corruption is putting the light of scrutiny on the area of tax more practice, tax uh, cheating, and the like. Uh, we should, we, we all should be happy. Uh, it, it's probably one of the commitments that I hope that we make to the higher that we will ramp up our tax revenues and we will use the, the OSP's efforts as as a the positive citations. They are, we are already trying to raise more taxes. Uh, the OSP is going after tax cheats. So we should be happy that it is happening. But I also think that you know the OSP, like every other uh, agency or public office, has scarce resources. So it must focus where it would get the most impact. So I, I also think it is good that it is focusing on some areas where there is some general consensus uh, even including within the political class. I remember very well that one of the first State of the Nation addresses that the president gave, um, if it's not 20, 2017, then 2018, he ex explicitly named some more, more practices going on at customs and how his administration was going to focus on that. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm happy that the OSP is redeeming that promise uh, in, that, in that area. Sure, when you do fight a uh, crime of any kind, you know, uh, you come up against the rights of innocent persons. And, and that is why, of course, the law erects presumptions. That is why when you arrest a person, that person may be either a person of interest to help you in the investigation or as a suspect, not yet, even an accused yet. Sometimes you... So there are ways in which we manage this perception, right? The OSP, you can't avoid it. When you are investigating somebody and it comes to the public notice, yes, some people would conclude that a person is guilty already or guilty as charged or even guilty before charged, right? And yet there is a process. There is due process. The OSP will walk through that process to the end, and then we would know if the person is free and is not convicted, then we know that the OSP uh, uh, did his best, but this person was not maybe the right, the right person. So, uh, but I think the publicity issue that you are asking, that should the OSP even be publicizing this? I remember, if, if I, I recall, this matter came up in the, in the, in the framing of the law. And uh, I, uh, in, my, in my association with CDD, was quite closely involved uh, in the crafting of the legislation 
we submitted a memorandum as part of civil society to the parliamentary committee and at the um, consideration stage, at the committee stage, uh, sorry, we also assisted the committee uh, with some clause-by-clause -clause review in examining the legislation, the bill at the time. And as I recall, the issue of this publication requirement came up. Under the law, the OSP law, the OSP is required every so often to put on its website or uh, in, in some other form um, information about the work it's doing, what cases are being investigated or under investigation, what, which ones have gone uh, to court, which ones have concluded. And I think the idea there was to really give public the public uh, an interest in following the OSP's work. Uh, people are giving up. You know, remember that people really were just throwing up their hands. We can't do anything about corruption. We can't fight it. So it was to build public trust in the office public confidence in the office, that the office, after being set up, had not become a do-nothing office, that it was sitting somewhere and not doing anything. So it was thought wise that we would put in a requirement that would say the OSP keep notifying us, updating us, give us status updates of what you're doing so that we would follow your work. And also, I mean, I think it's powerful because once you put the notice out, it also is helpful. It might assist the OSP itself in its work. Other persons in the public who may have information useful to the OSP, even just this conversation that we're having, from what, um, you know, uh, Kofi, uh, in, in, in the, I mean, the education that I'm getting alone from him, from the Honorable Minister, I mean, Honorable Member of Parliament, about the technical details of, mm. of the port administration and all of these things. These are useful things that OSP is not necessarily you know, a, a poor specialist, mm. right? So some of these kinds of airing um, these things publicly, I don't see it as, as damaging. It's supposed to help the OSP in its work. Okay. And, 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 and so I, but, but I do think that in terms of the management of uh, the interest of those parties who are the targets or the subjects of the investigation, that we have within our legal framework, enough safeguards to protect their innocence, right? To protect their innocence and the mere fact, I mean, the OSP is involving these people in handcuffs uh, to their offices and say, you're already guilty. It just let the public know this matter has been investigated. Mm. It involves this company. Mm. It involves this third party. Right. And I, I don't see that as really violating anybody's rights. Okay. Uh, thank you so very much, Professor HPC. And, and, and may, I make, may I make one one very last point on the auction vehicles. Uh, this issue is really dear to my heart uh, in, in many ways. Uh, I, I have, I'm a, a, a returnee, a former Ghanaian in the diaspora, a hustler um, who went and hustled. I have shipped cars to Ghana. Uh, you know, when I was coming back, actually, I became aware of this practice, the persistence of this practice in 2015 when I was coming back for good. And a friend asked me, are you shipping a car? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, but I can get you an auction vehicle. Does this practice still persist? I was aware of it during the PNDC days as a thermal boy when I knew that auction vehicles, you know, were available. Yeah. I thought it was a military kind of hunter uh, yeah. practice. Yeah. I was quite shocked in 2015 to learn that it was still persistent. And so, of course, I declined the offer. All right. uh, I shipped my car, paid my mm. duty. Mm. When, and, and, and I just wanted want to conclude on this one. In December 2016, after the elections, one of the first posts I put on my Facebook wall, December 19, 2016, what does change mean to you? And I'm quoting, what's the one thing or practice engaged in by government or government officials that outrages you the most and that you would like to see disappear under an Akufuado administration? My list is long, but I must name, if I must name only one, it is the shady business of so-called allocation cars. If you are familiar with the shenanigans that go on at the ports, you probably know what I'm talking about. And I go on to detail the practice, as has been described by uh, my good friend here. Right. Uh, and for me, this is one more way in which we insult and abuse Ghanaians in the diaspora. Mm. People go abroad, work their, you know, their bus off, so to speak, sorry, and really suffer through a lot of 
sometimes in dignity yeah. to bring these things yeah. home. And then somebody sits here, says you can't pay the duty, and therefore it's be taken and allocated. Mm. Uh, used to be allocated at the castle, right. national security, this, right. this, that. Mm. It still persists. Yeah. This is an insult. It's really an abuse. The, the issue is not just corruption. It's a social justice issue. Mm. It's so unjust that I am shocked that in 2022, mm. this practice persists. All right. And I'm so glad, mm. so glad that the OSD has decided, somebody finally has decided Thank to you. focus on this issue. Thank you and, so very much, uh, Professor H. Chrissy Prempe. Uh, there are many people who can testify to this, and you may have heard some of the guys in the, around the port they mention and say journalists, MPs, everybody benefits. Yes, I can testify that myself and there are some guys here at, at Joy who can tell you their stories when they were invited to benefit from auction cars and they just declined. We are not interested. We will buy, we'll import and pay the duty. You know, and people have been doing that. We need to build a nation. Now, the, the OSPs Act clearly provides in various sections of the law that it must make these publications. So, like Prof is saying, how to do it and not to unduly, you know, uh, victimize certain people. We'll take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we'll have uh, Gofred Kujo, Head of Credit Reporting Unit, Financial Stability Department of the Bank of Ghana, join us for the very short time left. Uh, apologies to you. Uh, to help you to stay away from putting your money in a place where you may find yourself in a men's gold situation. Uh, thanks to Dr. Kofi Mbia, uh, former CEO Ghana Shippers Authority and lawyer um, with uh, Maritime Law Consultancy and also doing international maritime with the International Maritime Organization. And also to Professor H. Chrissy Prempe, Executive Director, CDD. We'll return with Isaac Adongo and Golfred Kujo. We'll be right back. <laughs>